The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Bob Hoffman, author of Bad Men, How Advertising Went from a Minor Annoyance to a Major Menace. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Marketing Book or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Bob Hoffman back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Bad Men, How Advertising Went from a Minor Annoyance to a Major Menace. Bob Hoffman is a best-selling author, speaker, and advisor. He's one of the most sought-after international speakers on advertising and marketing. He's the author of two other books, Marketers Are From Mars, Consumers Are From New Jersey, and 101 Contrarian Ideas About Advertising. He is the author of the popular Ad Contrarian blog, named one of the world's most influential marketing and advertising blogs by Business Insider. Bob has been in the agency business. He has been the CEO of two independent ad agencies and the U.S. operations of an international agency. Okay, so that's a great bio, but but who is Bob Hoffman, really? Well, yeah, who am I? Here's what others have said about him. The Wall Street Journal says he's caustic yet truthful. Time Magazine calls him fabulously irreverent. And the Financial Times says he's responsible for, quote, savage critiques of digital hype. And Inc. Magazine says he pulls absolutely no punches. Bob, congratulations on Bad Men, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back, Douglas. Uh, how's how's the Marketing Book Podcast going? Oh, it's great. We've had 150 episodes, and wow. I, I just can't stop it. It's taken on a life of its own, and I absolutely love doing it. It's the most fun thing I get to do at work, and, and I have a lot of fun at work. So That's great. Can I ask you a few questions before you ask me questions? Sure. Now, how many of these 150 books have you actually finished? Every single one. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> you have read 150 marketing books? Well, more and than And you're that. still sane? You're yeah. still sane? Well, now, I don't make that claim. <laughs> my colleagues, as well as my family, would they ask me that same question, Bob. Okay, one more question. 
Have you ever read one of these books and you, you're like in the middle of it, you say, I can't read this thing anymore. This is just too much. Yes. And you have. Yes. Okay. Most of them are just phenomenally great reads. And, I, and, I, and of course, I love doing this. There have been a couple, uh, not too many, but a couple where I just remember thinking, this is the most tortured book I got through yeah. it, and then I had a great interview. But what happens is my colleagues in the office here, sometimes they'll pick up, because there's lots of books here, and they'll pick up one and start reading it. Well, what I've started doing now is on those rare occasions when it's really not a very good read, in the beginning of it, I will write, do not read this book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, And then there's been a couple that were, well, they were pretty bad, and and I thought, well, maybe they'd still make for a good interview, and, and then I ended up just not using them, which I hate having to do. Because <laughs> time is precious, but but I suffer for my art, Mr. Hoffman. I hope the audience okay. realizes that. But you just gave me the title for my next book. Do not read this book. That's what it's going to be called by yes. Bob Hoffman. Yes. Yeah, I like it's, it's got it. a okay. sort of who was it who wrote Steal This Book? Was that Abby Hoffman? Yeah, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, the other Hoffman, my brother Abby. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I knew you were cool, Bob. I just didn't know you were Abby Hoffman cool. So. You know, one thing people say is, why, why do you do this podcast? And as you've just may have picked up on, I, sorry to talk about myself so much here, listener, but I get to read all these books, which I love doing. It's professional development is performance art, and I like helping people. Mm -hmm. But also, I've gotten to meet a number of these authors, and I have actually been able to have adult beverages with a guy named Bob Hoffman. And so, Holy you know, Toledo. Yeah. You're a lucky man. I drop that all the time. See, oh yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had drinks with with Bob Hoffman, but that was when uh, that was in Nashville, great town. You yes. were the keynote speaker at Michael Gass's Ad Agency New Business Conference and in a rare display of poor judgment, he made me the master of ceremonies and it was, it was You did a great fun. job. What are you talking about? No, you did a great job. <laughs> Thanks. I thought you were uh, very impressive. Well, and and you no uh, nobody calls BS uh, out as much as you do and after you gave your keynote, I think the the BS meters went went way way down. I think people were very careful about what they said <laughs> afterwards and then the last day of the conference, you weren't there. You had to fly out early that morning, and I got up in front of the audience and said, okay, Bob Hoffman's gone, so we can all go back to what we do well. <laughs> Everybody can relax now. So, well, okay, now we're finished kissing each other's asses. Let's get to the yes, interview here. Yes. So I want to start with an excerpt, which is just, it's, it's pure Bob Hoffman from page nine. I'm a copywriter. I don't know very much about technology. I also don't know very much about media buying or selling. So why have I written a book about ad tech? Because although I don't know much about technology or media, I think I know a little something about bullshit. I spent 41 years in the agency business. You think you're full of shit? I have a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I think some software people and some agency people have gotten together and sold the marketing industry a bunch of dangerous crap known as ad tech. Bob Hoffman, what is ad tech and why is it such crap? Okay. Ad tech started benignly enough. It's a um, computerized way for us to buy, sell, and distribute online advertising. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at, it has evolved into a monster of collecting personal and private information about us. The advertising business used to be about imparting information to us. 
but it has evolved online into collecting information about us. And there is so much information being collected and distributed and sold and exploited that it has become very dangerous. So let's unpack this, this ad tech. Okay. How, how does ad tech, as you say in the book, drive money to the worst online publishers? Here's how it, here's how it kind of goes. I go to the New York Times website, for example, and someone who's advertising on the New York Times website drops a cookie on me. And they Which follow me. Which is a me. pixel placed on your computer that you're using. It's, yeah, it, it's a way to track where I'm going. And they follow me all over the web. They know everywhere I'm going. And the next time, they're not going to advertise to me at the New York Times website where it may, I'm just going to make up a number here, where it costs them 10 cents to find me. They'll advertise to me when I get to kittylitter.com, where it'll cost them a tenth of a penny to advertise to me. They'll show me the same ad uh, for a tenth or a hundredth of what it would cost to show it to me at the New York Times website. So what they are doing is they are stealing the audience from quality publishers, and they are following that audience, and the the crappy places where I go will get the advertising money, not the New York, not the New York Times. And this is essentially the value proposition of online advertising. It is we will find you the highest quality eyeballs at the shittiest possible locations and save you money by doing this. That's the value proposition of ad tech and of programmatic buying. Okay. Explain what programmatic buying is. Programmatic buying is just a fancy word for computerized buying. It just means that they're using computer programs to, to, to buy the advertising rather than human beings. And uh, so it saves agencies money. And it, uh, it does so in a way that it's done almost instantaneously. It's done in like a quarter. You go, you go to a website and in like a quarter of a second, an auction takes place at which uh, computers talk to other computers and say, Douglas Burnett is now at bikinibabes.com. Who wants to show him an ad? How much are you willing to pay? And the uh, computer programs talk to each other and someone wins the auction. And in about a quarter of a second, an ad appears from whoever the winning computer program is. And an ad is called up. Uh, from that winner, and it finds you. Okay, so now explain also how ad tech is the economic engine behind fake news. Okay, so I'm a crook, okay, and I'm going to I'm going to make a little website, and uh, you know I, I can create a website and load it up with content which I steal from other websites in about a couple of hours. Okay, so I'm making a website called um, stars, uh, stars who are naughty dot com. Okay, and I steal 
content from uh, other websites and uh, and and uh, I, I load it up on my uh, computer uh, on my uh, website and then I I create a phony story. Um, Douglas Burnett found in uh, you know some kind of troubling environment and uh, I put the charges were dropped. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. You're you're making an example. Okay. Yeah. This is this. I'm not talking about the actual story about you. Okay. I'm talking. I'm the. Uh, you know. I'm just making one up. So now I I go to social media and I uh, put up a headline: Douglas Burdett found here. Blah blah blah. Here, click here. They click there. A lot of people click because they want to read this dirty stuff about you. They go to the website. Meanwhile, the programmatic system ad techs all of a sudden sees a lot of people going to this phony website that you put up and uh, start sending advertising there and these people start making money because of the advertising that is being sent to this phony website with the phony story that's one example of how fake news is um, promoted or or is propped up by ad tech Mm-hmm. So would that be traffic fraud? That would be traffic fraud. Okay. Yeah, that would be traffic fraud. Then there's also click fraud mm-hmm. in which bots pretend to be humans and go to places and click. And uh, somehow this winds up, the money from the clicks winds up in the hands of crooks. I'm not really, you know, I'm to understand some of this stuff, Douglas, you really have to be either a computer scientist or a software engineer, some of it is so arcane and complicated. Believe me, for a year I've been trying to understand all the ways that this is happening. And, uh, you know, I'm dumber than average, but usually I can understand stuff. This stuff, some of it is so arcane I can't understand it at all. Okay, but let me interject. That is also being used by a lot of the advertising in the agency world to confuse their clients and Absolutely. keep it all in a black box and say, oh, uh, we're not going to tell you that. In fact, in the book, you talk about how some of the larger agencies will say, we're not going to even share that with our clients. Yeah. It's one of the great benefits to to the large agencies is that online advertising is so confusing and complicated that maybe there are 10 people in the world who really understand everything about it. And and they have pulled the wool over the, the eyes of their clients for so long now, for like 10 years on what's going on. And it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful system for charging people for things that they don't know they're being charged for because it's such a complicated mess. Mm-hmm. So you explain that there are two groups of people getting royally screwed by ad fraud. One's the publishers. We've just talked about that. And the other is the advertisers. So can you walk us through how, in a little more detail, how the advertisers really are getting screwed? Even show how a, like a dollar of digital advertising at best, might only end up as three cents worth. I think that's what yeah. you said. Yeah. Here's, uh, you know, once again, this is the dumb blogger version of how it works. To really understand how it works, you need a computer scientist. But it, it goes like this. The, in programmatic ad buys, about 60%, somewhere between 40 and 70% 
of advertising dollars are being skimmed by middlemen, by DSPs and by fraud finders. And um, so before the money even gets to the publisher. Well, you left out agencies. And agencies, right. right? Well, the agencies don't really take that much up front. Sometimes the way they take it is because they own part of the ad tech ecosystem themselves. They've had, they have invested in it. So, so, so it, it's a complicated mess. But, and, but the point is, from the time you start advertising until the ad actually appears online, you have spent 75 cents of your advertising dollar on stuff that is essentially non-productive in the sense that it doesn't reach the consumer. According to the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, only 25 cents of every dollar ever gets seen by the consumer. Now, now you have to factor in the consumer's interest in looking at these ads at, at this 25 cents worth of advertising. And we know from research that only 9% of online ads are even noticed, right? So if we, so if we say that that 9% of the 25 cents that reaches the consumer is, has some effect, then you're down to what about two and a half sense of every dollar that's actually productive in a consumer seeing an ad. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. So it's, it's, everybody's got their hand out and yes. by the time something might actually turn into an, to an ad, there's hardly anything left. So you said that according to the World Federation of Advertisers, by the year 2025, online ad fraud, which is enabled substantially by tracking, may become yeah. the second largest source of criminal income in the world. And organized crime is not yet a major player in ad fraud. And my question for you, Bob Hoffman, is how best can listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast get in on that? I know. How stupid are we? This is, this is such an unbelievable way to steal money. No one has ever prosecuted for it. We have, according to J.P. Morgan Chase, there's going to be 16 billion with a B dollars in ad fraud happening this year and uh, in, in the next year. 16 billion dollars, and nobody is ever prosecuted for it. It's unbelievable. It's a, it's literally a license to steal, and and according to you know people who. I'm not an ad fraud researcher, but according to ad fraud researchers who I have spoken with, organized crime isn't even in this game yet yeah. or, or hard, hardly in it. When they get into it, can you imagine what's going to happen? Well, they know what they're doing. They're professionals. Yeah, yeah. It, it's unbelievable. And the amount of fraud just keeps growing. Once again, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase said over $16 billion this year. Uh, the IAB said 7.2 million last year. That means it's going to more than double in the next year. There is nobody who is doing anything about this. You think that somewhere, you know, we think that, okay, it's crime. So somewhere there's Interpol or there's someone who is doing something about this, who's watching it, who's in charge of this. And there's no one. 
It, yeah. it just goes on and keeps growing. What we have are these fraud detection companies that claim that they can detect fraud. Well, sadly, the bad guys are about uh, a century ahead of the fraud detection companies. And the fraud detection companies, it, 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 you, you can hire three or four fraud detection companies to tell you how much fraud you're paying for, and you'll get four different answers. Yeah, they might, they might be as effective as the TSA. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great. Now I'm going to get frisked again. <laughs> That's all right. I prefer that. Yeah, you like the frisking. No? But you know, you, you said that, you know, we're talking about online ad fraud and, and, and criminals, but you argue that the group that gains the most is actually the legitimate marketing and advertising industry. Now, I am not for a second trying to say that they are complicit in the fraud. What I'm saying is that the fraud comes into play after at the end of the line very often, so that the legitimate, the advertising agencies and the ad tech ecosystem, all, all the middlemen. Some of which are conjoined. Get, yes, many of which are conjoined, make their money before the fraud happens. And so the more you spend on online advertising, Obviously, the more the the legitimate advertising and marketing players are going to make money, and they don't lose money if it turns out to have been fraud. If at the end you get a report in three months later saying you had twenty percent fraud or four percent fraud or sixty percent fraud, you don't get your money back. So these people have already taken their commissions on what they have done before the fraud enters the ecosystem, and so. They are, once again, according to fraud experts that I have spoken to, the, the, one of the largest groups of people benefiting from fraud are, are the legitimate advertising and marketing industry. Um, once again, not, not complicit in it, but as, as a side benefit are, are uh, gaining from it. Mm -hmm. And th th that's one of the reasons, I think, that there's so little being done about it. If the agencies had to give back money or pay fines when fraud was involved, they'd be a lot more, they'd take this problem a lot more seriously than they are currently taking it, I think. If there was a penalty to them, they would be doing more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I should say, I've worked at one of these big holding companies. I worked for two agencies. The one I worked for- You, you can tell us who. <laughs> WPP. Come on. But, okay. but it doesn't, I'm not saying they were involved in it, but I understand that sort of that world. And yeah. in fact, in the book, you even quote a guy that I had worked with. And mm -hmm. you, you say that the lapdog for the big six holding companies has been the four A's, the American Association of Advertising Agencies, because as you say, the big six are feasting at the online buffet. But according to reports, as much as 40% of their income may be coming from online advertising. And the part that really jumped out at me was you said agency leaders have been hiding the ugly details from their clients behind an impenetrable smokescreen of big data horseshit. <laughs> Did I say that? That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> jumped off the page at me. And I should say, Bob, your book entertained me thoroughly and kind of pissed me off. I'm glad. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what. That's exactly why I wrote it. I want it to be entertaining, and I want people to get pissed off. Well, but why have clients hungered to believe in this online miracle? I mean, the, the agencies are doing what they're 
asked to do. Follow the money. Why do the clients want to believe in this so much? I don't know. They 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 drank the Kool Aid, and they 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 just haven't. I I, I don't. I, I can't understand how stupid they have been. How much money they have pissed away over the last ten years on fantasies, on fraud, on stupid stuff that, you, you know, they traded what was working for what sounded good. It all sounded so great. Online advertising was going to be amazing, right? People weren't going to just look at ads. They were going to interact with them. They were going to go online and they were going to uh, join the conversation about brands and they were going to start their own conversations. And this was going to grow virally. And, and you know, it was going to grow and it was going to be free. You were going to go on, on Facebook and open your free page and people would uh, go there and share their enthusiasm and it would grow virally and you wouldn't have to pay for advertising anymore. And it was all such bullshit and they bought into it and and they forced us in the agency business to become quote more digital nobody knew what that meant uh we need to be more digital what the fuck does that mean i don't know but they forced us to do it and if you didn't do it you know you were a luddite dinosaur if you didn't throw their money away if you didn't piss their money away on stupid shit you were a luddite dinosaur and now they're starting to wake up you see what Procter and Gamble is saying what yeah. they're Talk what about they're what, doing. What happened? Procter and Gamble stopped, They cut out about 140 million in advertising this year. Uh, well, even be yeah, even before that, last last year, last July, uh, a year and a half ago, they told Facebook, "No more. We're cutting out our uh, our precision, our precision targeted advertising." on on facebook because what had happened was in the in the previous two or three years procter and gamble had taken about a third of their advertising money and put it into online advertising and in a 12-month period they lost eight percent of their sales they, they lost six billion dollars in sales and they said holy shit what are we doing here and and they told Facebook, no more of the precision targeted advertising. We're not doing that anymore. We need to do mass media advertising. They went back to that. And then this year, in the, I guess it was the second quarter, they cut out $140 million of online advertising from their budget. And their sales increased by 2%. And so, now, look, th this, is, this is not serious data. This is an anecdote, but it gives you a sense that even the biggest, most sophisticated advertiser in the world was sucked in by this, by the, by this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think marketers are starting to come to their senses about what's real and what's not. And look, I'm not trying to indict all online advertising. Some of it works well. You know, there are some there are some people who have been successful with. There's no question about that. You're talking primarily digital display ads. Is I'm talking correct? digital, yeah, digital display and digital video, and uh, yeah, and uh, video. Um, they are ridden with fraud, and I'm not talking about search necessarily. Like Pay-per-click. You're not talking about that. Uh, oh yeah, I'm talking about pay-per-click. Yeah, a, a lot of pay-per-click is is fraudulent clicks. A lot of it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, but what about the the people that say, well, yeah, but there's there's less advertising, there's fewer places 
there's fewer magazines, fewer newspapers, terrestrial radio. You know, they, no. they felt like they had to put their money somewhere. Yeah, that's a really, really dumb way to think. I mean, the the place to put your money is where it's going to work best. Now, you know, we had this 360 degree uh, media. It's it's baloney. Who can afford three? Coca-Cola can't afford that. And they have a two billion dollar advertising budget. Two and a half. Nobody can afford 360 degree marketing. You got to put your money where it's going to work. That's 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 the science of media planning. It's not, uh, we'll sprinkle a little bit everywhere. That That's dumb media thinking. Smart media thinking is where 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 is the, the best use of this money? How am I going to get the best return on this money? Where should I put it? And it doesn't necessarily mean a little bit of everything. Sometimes it means a lot of one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's change uh, direction just a bit here. Let's talk a little bit more about tracking. Tracking. In, in the book, you write that the, you say the idea that the consumer is in charge is a mirage. People think that because they can tweet, the fries at Wendy's really suck, we now have greater economic, social, and political control. They are alarmingly blind to the trade-offs the web has presented us with. Yeah. How so? Here's how so. So um, let me give you an example. There's a company in the UK, a research company called Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica, almost nobody has ever heard of, uh, except some of us in the marketing and advertising industry. People who who read your book this weekend. (laughs) They claim to have a file on every adult in America. That's 230 million people with four to 5,000 data points in every file on every individual. Now, and they will sell this stuff to whoever wants to buy it. Do you really think that they have all the information, but we're in control? Is there anyone stupid enough to believe that? It's, you know, we were taught that totalitarian governments are bad. And we have plenty of examples from behind the Iron Curtain and from from Nazi Germany about totalitarian governments that know everything about us, that know who we talk to, what we say, where we go, what we do. They have secret files on us that influence our lives in ways that are only vaguely visible to us. And we were taught to uh, beware of that. Well, now it's not the governments as much that are doing that. It's the marketing industry. They're the ones who are following us everywhere, who have secret files on us, who know everyone we talk to and everything we say. They're scanning our emails to know what we're talking about. I mean, it's reached the point where it's very dangerous. And just this morning, as we uh, record this, Douglas, there is uh, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times by someone who was an officer of Facebook telling the world not to trust Facebook. They cannot be trusted. And, uh, you know, this totalitarian marketing, we don't know where it leads. We've never had this before. It's unprecedented that the marketing industry would have so much information about every one of us. I think it's a very dangerous thing. And that's why I wrote the book. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll include a link to that op-ed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Bob, you write that there's only one solution to the problem. You say, take away surveillance and online advertising will become a minor annoyance like all of their advertising <laughs> forms instead of an intolerable, disreputable scourge. Explain what you mean by the solution. There are so many problems now with online advertising. And, you know, there's not one thing that's going to solve them all. But the first step is to stop the surveillance. We have a three-headed monster called tracking, surveillance marketing, and ad tech that is way too dangerous and that has made online advertising a scourge. I mean, we have 600 million devices in the world with ad blockers. Why do we have them? Because people hate online advertising. They hate it. Now, you know, like you just said, advertising has always been at best a minor annoyance. That's what it is. But it allows us a lot of stuff that we love. It it gave us free TV, free radio, um, and it gives us the stuff we we like online. The, The online world needs advertising to support all the things we like. But it's the type of advertising we're getting that is being dictated by tracking, by surveillance. It's this kind of click here, click now, do this immediately. It's the direct response school of advertising that has always been less creative and less appreciated than the brand style of advertising. And people are fed up with it. They're fed up of being annoyed all the time. They're fed up of the creepy kinds of advertising that follows them around and 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 knows what they're doing and knows everything that every place they've been to and annoys them with ads after they've bought stuff for, for six weeks. So if we take the surveillance part out of the online advertising equation, I think we will get a better advertising. B, advertisers will go to publishers with high reputations. Using the example that I did before, they'll stay at the New York Times and do their advertising there rather than follow me to Mm kittylitter.com. And uh, we will get a higher quality of advertising. There's no reason why online advertising can't be good and can't be effective and can't be as, as creative as print advertising or as television advertising. There's no reason why it can't be. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't been. And we know it hasn't been. We know, you know, everyone inside the agency world knows that online advertising is, you know, 98% crappy. And it shouldn't have to be this way. And I think if we take the surveillance factor out, not only are we doing good for individuals for their privacy and security, not only are we doing good for democracies, for having all this private information in the hands of people who shouldn't have it, but we're also doing good for the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. So let's say a CEO who's listening to this show then comes in on Monday, sits down with the chief marketing officer and says, hey, are we doing programmatic buys? Are we using demand side platforms? What what answers could come forth and what what should the CEO be looking for? I think The answer is probably that the CMO doesn't even know how they're buying. They think they know, but they don't. 
But the answer is what they should be doing is they should be buying either directly from quality publishers or from quality publishing networks that don't take programmatic buys from outside of the quality network. Those would be the first two things I would do. But if I was a CEO, I would also call in independent fraud researchers to go through because you need to be, like I said before, you almost need to be a computer scientist to go into the logs of where your ads are running and find out where the traffic is coming from, how it's getting there. Um, it, you, you need to do that in order to assure you to find out, I, you know, there are, there's a fraud, uh, um, there is a fraud researchers I know who are called in by one of the world's largest advertisers. I can't mention any names. And these people were spending about 600 million, I think, a year in online advertising. Turned out that almost 200 million of it was fraudulent. I mean, it's insane and to, to be wasting $200 million a year, giving it to criminals and getting nothing in return. And they didn't know. They had no idea. They were getting reports from their agencies saying that their advertising is fraud for, you know, everyone. It's amazing how everyone's advertising is 100% viewable, but in aggregate, it's only 50% viewable. And everyone's advertising is 100% fraud free, uh, but in aggregate, it's about 40 or 60% fraud. You really have to go, you have to find some computer scientists who know what they're doing, who know what fraud look, looks like online to go into to go deep into it forensically. Is that a good word? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For, and, and, and really give you a report on what's happening. Well, that's, that's great advice. Also, are, isn't there some legislation in Europe that's coming up about having to be much more upfront about the tracking you're doing? Yes, there, is, uh, there are two pieces of uh, legislation that are due to go into effect in May um, in the European Union. And one is called the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation Permission, before they can collect, use, sell, share personal private data about you. This is long overdue. Now, the, the question is, what's going to happen between now and May when this is supposed to go into effect? Because I guarantee you that Facebook and Google are going to be lobbying like you can't believe to get this rewritten so that they can continue doing what they're doing. You have to understand they're making tens of billions of dollars based on, annually based on their ability to collect and sell information about people. That's how that, that that's their value proposition. And they're not going to give this up lightly. So you know that there's going to be some heavy lobbying going on in Europe to try and fight these regulations. Now, if I were, you know, I know, I know I have met people who head up the World Federation of Advertisers and the 4As, and they're good people. These are good people. And what they should do is get together now before these regulations go into effect and come up with guidelines for advertisers and for online media 
that says from now on we're not going to do this. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what you, here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. And Mr. Media, Mr. Facebook, Mr. Google, Mr. Website, if you don't if you don't follow our guidelines, we're not advertising with you anymore. We have hundreds of billions of dollars that we control between the World Federation of Advertisers and the four A's. We have hundreds of billions of dollars in advertising that we control. And if you don't abide by these guidelines, we're not going to be advertising with you anymore. And then show that I would show the European Union uh, what what is being planned to do and hope that the European Union would give them the chance to regulate it themselves. The odds of this happening are somewhere between zero and nothing. But that's what they should do before onerous regulations are forced down their throat in May, because there's really only two options. Either you do it yourself or you're going to be force fed these regulations. Mm -hmm. And the, and if the advertising industry had any sense, they would get together and try to come up with something that would be acceptable to the EU uh, and, and safe and fair to the public. But, you know, uh, the the odds of that happening, I think, are about just about nothing, just well, about yeah, zero. Yeah, it's like you're setting up World War III here because Google, in the book, you talk about how Google and Facebook now account for 77% of all yeah. online ad revenue in the U.S. And Google and Facebook refuse to accept industry standards. Yeah, they, they for years they have fought against being audited. The advertising industry came up with ways to check on what's going on. Yeah, we wouldn't buy advertising if it weren't audited. Exactly. And all of a sudden, the, the handsome cowboys came riding into town, and we got mesmerized like uh, infatuated schoolgirls with their, with their line of bullshit, and, and we bought into it. And, you know, as uh, I don't know who, who I think it was uh, Martin Sorrell said, that they're marking their own homework. And that's true. They won't accept or up until now, they haven't accepted. Funny that the chairman of a holding company would say that. They haven't accepted wild, widely recognized standards of measurement. And uh, how, how do clients and agencies accept this? I don't understand it. Mm. Mm. Well, Bob, one last question. What are a couple of things that we as consumers can do? First of all, you're living in the real world and there's no way to avoid some of the surveillance that you are being subjected to. There's just no way to complete, you know, unless you move to the wilderness and unplug your computer and your cell phone, you're going to be tracked at least to some degree. The things you can do are use a browser that that doesn't follow you everywhere. Um, there are browsers, DuckDuckGo. That's a search engine. Oh, sorry, that's what I'm, I'm sorry. I meant yeah. a search engine. I, there's DuckDuckGo, there's Brave. Then there are browsers. The, the new um, Safari browser is supposed to not track you once you leave Safari and and to erase all your footprints after 24 hours. I'm not sure about that, but that's what I've read. Once again, you need the best thing to do is to go online and read what experts say, not what bloggers say. 
And then, you know, there are settings you can do in Facebook and Google that limit what, what they can track about you. Which I did after reading your book. Thank you. Good. And then there are things like a privacy badger, which let you know who's dropping cooking cookies on you and you can um, decide which ones you will accept and which ones you don't accept. From the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Yes, that's That's right. That's the one I downloaded on Saturday after I finished this. It's been a busy weekend for me, Bob. (laughs) I think one of the key things to realize is that we all have different tolerance for privacy. And um, for example, I I don't want to have to sign in to Amazon and and give them my credit card information every time I I buy something. So I am willing to allow them to have what's called a first party cookie. When I come in, they know it's me. They know who I am. Uh, Just as long as they don't use it, they don't sell that information. They don't have third parties dropping cookies on me, collecting this information. So the, so I have a certain tolerance for a little bit of tracking that I will accept. But we all we're all different, and that that's one of the things that the the uh, European Union knows in the in the GDPR that you're going to be able to select the level of tracking, and in some cases you can pick no tracking. You don't want to be identified when you go to a website, and that's what I think is fair. Let the consumer decide, give the consumer equal power with the marketer, and and that will make the web a much better place. So, Bob, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? <laughs> the one thing I want them to take away is that there's a dangerous thing going on. It's a three-headed monster called tracking, surveillance marketing, and ad tech. It is dangerous to to us as individuals, and it's dangerous to us as a free society, and we need to do whatever we can to see to it that these things are controlled and, uh, and that the Wild West of information collecting about us is ended. Bob, well said, and after reading your book, I was just wondering if you're concerned about your own personal safety. You know, I'll tell you the truth. I know uh, I have been... You threw a lot uh, of bombs in this book. I lost a couple of speaking gigs. I have a feeling something that uh, I did last week has been censored. It it has not appeared where it normally appears. I'm not afraid for my life, but I am afraid that there's a kind of low-grade McCarthyism happening whereby uh, voices that are outside the, uh, shall we say, normal range are uh, not getting heard as much as they should be heard. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? There is a website called, my company name is called Type A Group. So if you go to typeagroup.com, you'll see my website, or you go to my blog, which is adcontrarian.com. Dot com. And you're on Twitter, you're ad contrarian. So if you're listening and yeah. you're on Twitter, send a, send some love Bob's way. So let me uh, close with uh, one quote, one excerpt. We are being held hostage to some very large entities, Google, Facebook, Amazon, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the 4As, the Association of National Advertisers, and others. These people are now in the surveillance business. 
They are the power behind ad tech tracking and surveillance marketing. Their business is collecting, selling, and exploiting the details of our personal lives and our personal behavior. It's bad business. The name of the book is Bad Men, How Advertising Went from a Minor Annoyance to a Major Menace. The author is Bob Hoffman. Bob, thank you very much for coming back to the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Douglas. Take care. And that closes the book on episode 151 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Cindy Barnes to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her newest book, Selling Your Value Proposition, How to Transform Your Business into a Selling Organization. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. So I enjoyed following your trip to Australia and, and all points Good. in between. Good. Yeah. I just got back from Prague um, last week where I spoke with 1,800 people under 30, all of them online maniacs. Oh, that's right. I and, saw that picture. <laughs> I was like the last person they wanted to hear from, but it went pretty well, actually. Wow. Wow.